Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. You know, one of the frequently discussed topics here on Experience by Design is the challenge of change. And it's funny because the nature of the universe, we might say, is change, but we as humans and beings that make organizations and codify laws and things like that have a real challenge with dealing with change and, uh, and kind of going with the flow sometimes. And it's interesting because we we find that organizations will often think about change and talk about the idea we want to change for being better for our customers or making more sustainability as part of our work or improving our internal uh, you know culture and, and world of communication. But they're often not quite as serious about actually changing, right? A lot of talk, not a lot of action. And more often than not, we find that change tends to feel like a tagline that you'd see like in a, in a corporate mission statement or some kind of strategic plan. You know, and then when it comes down to actually making change where that rubber would hit the proverbial road, you know, organizations have to consider things like resourcing and people and budgets and time horizons. And then the reality of, you know, what change could actually do runs up against the actual desire to be able to implement it. And it's crazier too, because change can be even more difficult when it seems like things are going well, you know, it's like the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it comes to mind. And, you know, why would you change if you didn't need to? But the problem in this logic we find is that when things are going well, that may actually be the best time, you know, to think about what we should do for change. And using these prosperous times to kind of prepare for the lean times when change is imperative but no longer possible. So towards that end, today in Experience by Design, we chat with Andy McDowell about his own experiences with experiencing and designing for change. Andy started the company Generate Your Value, whose mission is described as to serve a, as a powerful catalyst for entrepreneurs to experience extraordinary success in business and life. And to help clients achieve this transformation, he takes the approach of applying tools more traditionally used for organizational change, along with innovation strategies that he himself used in his work, and applies those things, those techniques, and those strategies to individual lives. We talk with Andy about how going to and then leaving a company like Boeing, not just like Boeing, it was Boeing, <laughs> Very much so. to his own realization of achieving individual change. We also chat about how hard it can be to be heard within your own organization when trying to lead innovation and change initiatives. And I know, and anybody who's experienced this knows, it can be incredibly frustrating and challenging not to be recognized for the ideas that you're sharing and to end up being ignored. And what do you do and where do you go from there? We discuss his own challenges in Boeing to be heard, how he uses this experience to fuel his own work and his work with his clients, and how that work and experience in Boeing and throughout his career trajectory has translated into helping others to transform their own work and their own lives. It was a really great conversation and we caused a lot of reflection and thinking about the past, how that past makes it possible to embrace and take advantage of the future, how to make change possible in organizations and how to make change possible in ourselves. Hope you enjoy it. I'll go for a sponsorship from uh, Mangroomer, since that Mangroomer. seems to be the demographic. Because I think the original Mangroomer was like just a pole that you could attach a razor to or something. <laughs> it was like some kind of like weird contraption for your back hair, or uh, something like that. A stick with some blades taped to it. I basically it looked Sounds like yeah. some kind of like torture device from medieval times or something you might see like on The Witcher or Game of Thrones. I'm like, what is? And that's a thing, huh? I, th I think they've uh, branched out now to. Uh, well, it's, it's a topic for an episode right there about uh, how do you prove to be a man? And back in the days, it was the ability to stick some blades on a, mm -hmm. on a stick and shave your back, shave your groin area. Yeah. Right. Well, without, without having your like test of, yeah. yeah. We're going to bring that back. 
I think that that's what, you know, maybe, maybe the, um, the hipsters are already doing it. I don't know. Uh, I mean, the, the <laughs> tribes in South America would take their young men out into the jungle and do what rituals and whatever to prove mm-hmm. their manhood. Right. Well, just another version of that. It's well, a good point. You know, they, they, there's, there's legend of, of, you know, sticking your hand in a glove of bullet ants and you can't make any sounds. Uh, so we can just do that with, uh, you know, with a blade on your, on your sack, you know, it's yep. totally safe. <laughs> there was actually, well, you know, if you're familiar with me, I'm a, I'm a runner and there's a one tribe or one group in Kenya that's renowned for the, their runners, right. Producing all these great Kenyan yeah, runners. Yeah. And yeah, one of their rights, of, yeah. One of the rights of yeah. passage was basically putting like a mud mask on and going through these excruciating trials. And if you, if there's any crack in the mud mask, it meant that you were wincing or making a facial expression of suffering. And that meant like, you know, failed. So, I mean, but you worked at Boeing, so you must be used to trials of pain. Uh, Every year. (laughs) Started with an organizational change beginning of the year. You know, I used to joke with my team, what color, what color? What color are we this year? Are we red? Are we blue? Are we green? You know, because they they were asked backwards. Instead of having strategy drive and organizational change, it was um, who had the political power up top and change things around. Then we'll figure out a strategy later. Hmm. Yeah, that, that that's that's an interesting, like kind of anecdote to to help us think with here. Cause I'm curious too, cause I, I, I imagine that you find in, in your work um, with clients that this is probably a not uncommon framework that a lot of time it's kind of like, who's got the political clout, who's, you know, who, who's kind of top dog rather than taking a more strategic approach to thinking through organizational. And, and what derives it. So yeah, when you're held captive by a wall street, like Boeing is, it's all about cash flow and stock price. And that's what drives the drives the decisions. Hmm. So he who has the product or service that makes the most money and the most profit gets the most attention uh, could be the worst leader in the world. But if they have the crown jewels, then they have the most political power within the company doesn't matter strategically what you're doing. You're just watching the numbers at the bottom of the spreadsheet hmm. doing organic growth because that's what keeps the cash flow and the king's jewels going. Mm-hmm. I, was talk- I was talking with another person the other day and one of the points, he's a consultant, one of the points he was, we were talking about was what's the sweet spot of organizational tra- you know, size to make creativity, innovation, and transformation most possible. And if it's too, if it's a startup, they're kind of like on, you know, just doing the thing. It's trying to get things going. That's where the focus is. If organizations are too big, it becomes kind of un, unwieldy to do that. And you have all the politics and everything. And somewhere in the middle is this sweet spot. And I know that you're, mm-hmm. what you focus on tends to be those, you know, small to mid-sized organizations. I mean, what, I'm curious what your experiences are and thoughts on that are in terms of like the sweet spot of organizational size to make these kinds of transformations and changes possible. Yeah, so I think in, innovation is more of a factor of your culture and your, and your processes, not, but to me, they have a much bigger impact than organizational size and structure. Okay. So if, in, if innovation is a big component of your culture, then you have a culture that allows free thinking, creativity, uh, no ideas, a bad idea. There might be better ideas. And we're going to take the best one out of this group, but we want them all on the table and under consideration and discussion. And we bring out the best one, two, three, depending on what you're trying to target and then allowing them to move through the processes of the company to be evaluated, decide if you're going to make it as an offering into the marketplace and so forth and so on. So right. uh, what I th- 
it gets unwieldy with the bigger organizations, but I think you've got to have a, a piece of your organization whose culture is different. Right. That allows that innovation to occur and you come out with your three best ideas and then you then you put them into the more bureaucratic organization to take it through the the processes. But if you keep it under the same culture as a bureaucratic organization, it's just gonna be stifling, nothing's gonna really happen. Yeah. And, uh, on the services side of Boeing, we really struggled with that. Yeah, it's one of those things that I, you know, I've, I've read about and I've looked at more and more. And you know, there's this idea of like, you know, a skunk works team that's kind of, you know, separated out. That's an incubator. And there have been times when I've been in meetings where I work, and you know, they're the normal standing meetings that we're doing bureaucratic stuff, and and then people try to say, you know, what ideas can we bring forward? And it's like this is not gonna everyone's so in the weeds about doing the managerial administrative organizational structural stuff, which needs to get done that then the shift and go into this loon shot kind of mentality, you know, it just doesn't work. And how do you create that separate space that's protected from the deliverable mindset mm -hmm. and into the creative mindset? Well, I, going back to the culture piece too, I think part of the struggle is, are all, all the ideas being generated based off of what uh, the thoughts of everybody around the table, what's happening in the marketplace? Or are you going out and having a lot of conversations with your customers, maybe even embedding yourself with your customer for a while to truly understand and uncover where they're having problems or where they could have benefits with uh, technology processes, whatever it is that you're selling or have a capability of making from the marketplace. And I know the division of uh, Boeing that I was in, uh, we were almost considered a monopoly for the longest time. And so hmm. we were just out there generating all the thoughts on our own. It's like, well, you got no, you know, the subconscious mentality was uh, we know what we're doing. We're figuring out here's the offering you got no other choice, so just take our choice. And it wasn't until we had serious competition came in with an almost Apple startup-like company with two guys working in a garage. You know, once we went into the digital world, the barriers to entry went way down with digital. And then we really had to get serious about strategic thinking, strategic planning, and actually getting out with a customer, we used to hold meetings with customers around the world and A, inform them of our thinking and processes, but also getting their feedback. But it took competition to force that issue on us. Mm. Uh, when I first came in the organization uh, in an acquisition and started looking around as a strategic thinker, I'm like, are, are you crazy? But I couldn't find one person that had strategy in their title. Mm. Um, and so if you, if you don't have the competition, it's like, why, why bother? Why am I going to put the resources towards that kind of activity when it's not needed? Because we really don't have a serious contender in our marketplace. And you didn't see those positions and so forth start popping up until we got some serious competition in our hands that was really blowing us away, particularly in the uh, general and business aviation markets. This this is really interesting, uh, and, and something that I hadn't I hadn't quite considered the the relationship between uh, having intentional strategic positions in a company and organization in the in in the connection to direct competition in the marketplace, uh, and this is this is interesting uh, because you know when we when we come at a question from the idea of experience design, you know, so Gary and I are ethnographers. Uh, by by training in work and and so you know when you, when you're talking through this idea of of culture and how do we think about innovation, you know you noted talking with customers and betting with them you know that, that's like the bread and butter of where we we kind of come from, and so it's it's actually very interesting and enlightening to think through on the organizational side where are some of the challenges that we find and so that do we have a level of strategic um, you know positioning are we thinking through the strategy of where we fit in the marketplace. Um, if we don't have a lot of competition is, is interesting, you know, so there is this kind of tension between what our customers looking for and problems they have versus what's happening inside the organization and where do the ideas come, uh, come from, you know, and are we generating them inside? Are we, are we doing them by talking with customers? And so 
or, 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 yeah. or, or educating the customer mm. that doesn't realize they do have a problem right? yes. because yeah. they're not thinking down forward enough down the road of their own business. And maybe you have some ideas they hadn't even thought about, thought about and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Did you find, I mean, that's, that's what I'm curious about. Like when, so kind of pre pre competition, you know, that it was like that. So part of it, it sounds like, you know, how do we help customers help think about solve those problems? But once we, you know, have competition, how, how did strategic thinking happen at Boeing or, or did it not happen? It didn't happen in the same way. It sounds like, so was it more, well, it, my comments were about my division. Gotcha. Okay, um, sure, sure. So, which is on the services side uh, okay. as opposed to the manufacturing side, but you have to realize for the long, uh, well, Boeing had McDonald Douglas as a competitor, but they bought them. And then the Europeans got into the game and Airbus showed up and became a duopoly. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. which is a whole other animal. You do have competition. They keep you honest, but there is that sort of sub- subconscious of, okay, you take 50% of the market, we'll take 50% of mm-hmm. the market and we'll, we'll both be happy and making our numbers and stock price will be great. And uh, it, it keeps you in check, but it doesn't really strengthen your strategic uh, muscle, so to mm-hmm. speak. From that from that perspective, um, I don't know. It was just an interesting di- uh, dynamic. I was put in charge of trying to grow this business, and I had to go out and find resources within Boeing to help me do that: marketing, finance, you know, all the typical stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, I need a strategy person to help me out with my mm. thinking, and start looking around. Went, what? What? I can't. Mm. I can't find anybody, mm. and. So I, I came up from a background of geographical information systems, which was a new technology right. that was coming out. Sure. And I, I walked into my division of Boeing when we got acquired and started looking around. And here's a navigational company that got bought by Boeing. Uh, navigation is all about going around the earth, but yet there's not a single conversation in the hallways about embracing GIS technology. Hmm. And so I, I started trying to have those conversations with my boss and others within the, within the company that we need to take a serious look at that technology. And it was probably, you know, I had a 22 plus career with them. I would say it was at least, I don't know, six, eight years later before they started getting serious about it. Interesting. You know, after it became more mainstream. Mm-hmm. And so how, you know, I'm curious too, in this regard, so kind of across, across this trajectory too, you know, what was, what was, you know, your role in terms of helping bring and instill this idea of, of like, how do we think about technological innovation? And like GIS is a great example, I think too, because it's, you know, it's, it was new at the time and it's like slowly became more mainstream. So even this idea too, in terms of like, do you find that there was kind of an appetite where leadership would, would have a sense of, okay, we understand this as a more mainstream idea, therefore we can adopt it easier? Um, or like, how did you work that process with with the, with the organization around technology? Uh, well, a lot of it's initially just about teaching, you know? So, mm-hmm. okay, what is this GIS thing? Um, what is it all about? What does it do? Um, and you can have that conversation with the people that are immediately around your circle and hope that it makes its way up through the organization. And there was no incubation or innovation group that you could go have these conversations with to help drive it. Because once again, we, we had a monopoly kind of mentality and culture within the division. And so uh, it was a long and winding road trying to uh, throw enough popcorn on the floor for a trail to get people to, to think about this strategically when they're just trying to keep the crown jewels going. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the barriers to entry at the time, it was not digital based. It was, well, you could have all this capital and printing presses and everything else to print the maps and the charts that all the pilots were using. And so the uh, world was good until digital came along and sort of um, eliminated the need for printing presses and all that capital dollars to get started as a business. Two guys in a garage could do it. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of pain. Mm. 
And so like a year, year before I got laid off, they ended up buying that company. Interesting. So it, it goes from kind of, kind of a, a, yeah. How do we think through the, the, the capital intensive barrier to entry for physical products, then digital kind of switches that. And then on top of that, okay, now we're going to buy the company. So, <laughs> cause we see the value in it, you know, so that's uh-huh. interesting too. Um, and so that, that's a kind of a mix. I uh, um, appreciate what you're saying where it's thinking through the question of how do we sort of teach it? I like the metaphor of like leaving enough popcorn or breadcrumbs so they can, folks can follow the idea of like how this would help us if we adopt it, if we think about strategy. So I don't know. Is, yeah, I, I mean, my first, yeah. my, my first five years in the company was so frustrated me. I felt like I had a flat forehead, blood dripping down my, my face. And trying to get people to see these things and, and take it seriously, but I was uh, I was limited by the culture, mm. culture and organizational structure. And yeah, 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 we hear you. You know, I had I had the same problem uh, when I made director I was going to quarterly director meetings and all, all this talk about the, the airline side of things and all this um, great conversation about products and services rolling out. And I would pull our divisional CEO to the side and said, you're operating airplanes in a single airspace run by air traffic control, a different organization. And yeah, you may get a solution for an optimal route for a flight, but they don't own the airspace. Mm -hmm. I I would ask that question all the time to people when they were bringing out new products and services and then ask the question, are you really getting the ideal solution every single time when somebody else owns the airspace? Hmm. That must have made you intensely popular at these meetings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but how 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 else do you drive change? How else exactly do you drive right. innovation unless you just keep pounding yeah. away until somebody goes, you know, you've got a valid question here, and we need to start taking a serious look at it. I mean, yeah, from from a, a liability perspective, a risk perspective, and everything, Boeing didn't want to play in the air traffic control arena. You know, that's the government's problem. We, you know, we only deal with them when we have to certify an airplane. Mm. You know, yeah, we have people like yourself to interface with them and sort of help us deal with some of the issues to fight the fires. But when it comes to innovation and where we could really make leapfrogs innovation, I kept pushing in the second half of my career. It was just like crickets tripping because it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't the big dollars. It wasn't the, the crown jewels that, that kept Wall Street happy and so forth and so on. And I'm, I, I hope before I pass from this earth, that the solution I was pushing for, uh, I, can't, I can't tell you all what it is for proprietary reasons, but that it comes to reality. Because I, I, I hope the, the industry finally makes it happen for the industry. But in my opinion, Boeing was in the best position to take advantage of it from a capital perspective, a knowledge perspective, and so forth. And, uh, I kept throwing an article that Peter Drucker had done uh, in the Harvard Business Review as a sound strategic reasoning for why we should do this. And it's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Hmm. All right. You're going you're gonna to name the, what's considered the most produ- pr- predominant strategic thinker in business. Okay. It, it, it reminds me of Luke 424. You know what I mean, right, Adam? From the book of Star Wars? <laughs> this, you know, it's, it's a saying, right? That is, uh, and I just looked it up so I get the quote right. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I've experienced it too, that you're sitting there and you're going, this is what we should do. This is what we should do. This is what we should do. This is why we should do it. And no one's going to listen. But if you bring a consultant in <laughs> who might mm-hmm. say the same mm-hmm. things, now people may pay attention. It's a weird, you know, again, Luke 4, 24, going back to the Bible, apparently Jesus as a strategic thinker and innovator was facing the same problems that you were, Andy, at Boeing. I mean, it's, a, it's an old story, but it's a well-worn one that, you know, no prophet is accepted in his or her or their hometown. And it's an interesting phenomenon organizations of, dismissing the wisdom and the knowledge and the insight of one's own people, but then willingly paying for it for someone from the outside and valuing that more and what that does to people's sense of uh, belonging and appreciation in an organization. 
Well, uh, speaking of belonging, another part of the culture was if you if your job wasn't located in Seattle or Denver, where my division was headquartered, then out of sight, out of mind. Right. Mm. I kept begging for people out of Denver and Seattle to come visit my team in Atlanta and see what we do and think about how we could be working together. It never came, you know. Interesting. So it's like still on the team, but not 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 outside enough to be a consultant. But but well, um, you're you know, you're there when you're needed when you have to put out a fire. But when it comes to strategic thinking, uh, what you might value have to offer to the organization, it's you know if you're not there in the weekly, daily meetings and seeing all the time, then you're just an afterthought. And mm-hmm. I, I talked to other directors that weren't in those cities too. It was the same thing. It wasn't just me. It wasn't an Andy thing. It was a culture thing. One of the things that we talk about in qualitative work, or at least I talk about in qualitative research is one of the differences between like numbers driven research or analysis, data analysis, I should say, and qualitative is in quantitative work, if there's an outlier, you usually eliminate that outlier. If it's too far outside of the regression line, right? Because it's too many deviations away that the person's responses or attitudes are not seen as valid or reliable, right? There is something wrong. Whereas in qualitative mindset, you look at the outlier and you go, oh, what's happening there? That seems interesting. We need to investigate that more. And in a weird kind of way, and I uh, clearly Boeing being an engineering kind of quantitative culture, that kind of mindset is, it seems reflected in what you're talking about. If you're not in the norm, if you're not in the regression line, you're not part of the conversation. If you're an outlier, you're kind of scrubbed. Whereas in a more qualitative mindset, the idea is let's look for the outliers and see what they can contribute because maybe they have perspective and insight that is unique. So part of what I tried to achieve in Boeing that I never was able to achieve was to get Boeing to think that they're an aviation company instead of an airplane company. Mm-hmm. Right. And when, when you're when you do that, you can start helping the industry to become a proactive industry instead of reactive. So w- what do I mean by that? You know, the solutions that I try to get them to see, I was trying to change an air traffic control culture built 50, 60, 70 years ago, you know, when an airplane came into a controller's airspace, they were throwing a flight strip across the room to the next guy. Oh, right, right, right. Who had to handle it, right? So it's reactionary. I don't worry about this airplane until it comes into my sector. And I'm just passing them from sector to sector to sector until they get to their destination sector and land at the airport. So you have no idea what kind of demand is coming on your controllers in a particular sector. There's nothing or there's not a lot you can do from an efficiency standpoint, from a work process standpoint and doing it that way. Um, and, and, and Boeing was a great firefighter. Just like they're doing right now. They're putting out a fire with the 787 deliveries and putting out a fire with the 737 max mm-hmm. crisis. Uh, because strategic planning was not a strength within the, within the organization and, and start looking at ways that it could really affect the overall industry and, and working together well with other players within it uh, to bring about capacity and efficiency into the whole industry and creating a, a flight operation that was proactive instead of reactive. And so if you, if you don't have strategic thinkers or an innovative unit, skunks work or whatever, they can look at those type things and start driving that innovation. They're just going to keep the crown jewels going. Mm-hmm. So how do we get more, you can more efficiency out of the airplane? Because our, our customers are concerned about uh, fuel burn as their number one expense outside of the capital cost of the airplane and labor for their flight crews flight attendants. That's uh, I mean, it was indeed a culture yeah. thing. The, the strategic planning process was not very robust. Yeah. And, and it, I think, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. And it sounds like a big challenge. It's, it's interesting to, to think about this as a 
quality of good firefighting. And that's, that's a nice image. Um, and it makes me also think of just echoes of Facebook also, like when it's a, when it's a mega institutional organization, uh, and, you know, with the Cambridge Analytica scandal and in, in their case, in terms of, you know, how are they using data, um, in unethical ways in relationship to, to election tampering. Um, in, in that, like it's, it's a lot of it is about a question of, of how good of a firefighter are you in that regard, but it's also reactive, right. In terms of what is it, what is it that we're, we're trying to kind of get out and do with our, with our work. I think, uh, I mean, something I'm curious about with this too, is that um, both in Boeing and then also afterwards, you, you yourself did these, this really interesting kind of transformation transition work. And, and so a lot of your work now is also premised on helping organizations think about these, these questions of, of how can we be proactive? Or like, what does it mean to actually be a leader? So, um, you know, we, we talked a bit about this in terms of the ways you, you thought through a bit of teaching and how do we diagnose some of the issues and problems that we're seeing. But, um, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about is, you know, you, you've transitioned some of this work into also self-transformation. How do we think about business transformation in relationship uh -huh. to self-transformation? Um, and I'd love to hear about that because I think that's a really interesting idea because we do talk a lot about like, we need good leadership in organizations. Uh, but how do we get there, right? So how do we get from this idea of like, let's not be reactionary, let's actually put good leadership in place. And so um, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that organizations also face. If a culture's like not great, it, it often is because leadership is is not great, right? In terms of setting that stage. So tell us, yep. I mean, I, I want to break that down a little bit. Like how do we put ourselves in, into this mindset of, of making better leaders to then make a better organization? Yeah, so you're getting to the heart of my platform. Uh, in my way, in my thinking about life, uh, so you go listen to my podcast episodes and so forth, they preach a lot about the overlap between life and business. Hmm. So human beings uh, by nature have needs. Uh, you have to put a roof over your head. You have to have shelter. You have to have food. Um, your your whole human soul wants to uh, feel like it's part of something bigger than yourself, that you have uh, value in your community, you're, you participate in your community, you're, you have value in it, you're a contributor to it, and so forth uh, mm -hmm. in life. If you go look over at business, businesses were, were created to address needs, right? Needs of another business, needs of end consumers needs of nonprofits, you know, all kinds of markets have developed, but that was the primary focus of a business was there's a great enough need out in the world that I can mass produce a service or a product to address the need. Mm. So with that, with that comparison and analogy, what I put forth is that you could use business tools and concepts to help you build a life strategy uh, for yourself. Mm. So, you know, one of the simple ones I, I use, I've talked quite a bit on other podcasts about is a strategic tool that usually starts a strategic conversation is called a SWOT analysis, mm -hmm. strength, weakness, opportunity, threat. And you, and you use it to do a self-evaluation of where you are in the marketplace, what do you what do you feel like your strengths are as an organization, your weaknesses, where do you have business opportunities, and where are the threats uh, for you to be successful? Well, in your personal life, if you take the word opportunity and change it to love, and the word threat to fear, you can use this. What would you call it? An SWLF tool to help develop a life strategy for yourself to do an introspection and say, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Do I feel I could get input from other people? Uh, where, where are my loves and passions and desires or the opportunities for me to go pursue in my life to bring joy, happiness, and success into my life? And then where are the threats? What's going to hold me back? What's, what's a threat to me achieving that in my life? And it's typically fears that you have whether it be self-esteem-based fears, uh, fears of comparison, shame, judgment, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, and that can be a good starting point for you to then put a strategy together, whether it's through counseling or your own hard work, or reading books or talking to friends or, you know, 
any of those items on the list to then execute on a strategy that you you have for yourself. And that's what I help an individual do uh, to have self-esteem, confidence, everything that you need to be a successful leader. You go on that journey internally, make your mistakes, get back up, get yourself back on the horse, keep going and from learning these lessons. It's in your, it's in your, in your brain from an experience standpoint that you could then use to help lead others having gone through it yourself uh, to make good decisions for your business, good decisions for members of your team, because you've been through that experience. And uh, when you do that, you're leading from an angle of service to your team and to your business, as opposed to uh, you've got hurts, pains, issues inside yourself, that you're, you're leveraging your title your authority, you're micromanaging people because you want to control stuff because you've got too much fear um, in your life and you haven't changed the fear into a love, love for self and love for others mm-hmm. um, kind of standpoint. And you know, I'm in the process of writing a book to use some other business and strategic tools that people can use to help lead themselves and then eventually lead others. So I'm kind of curious if I was going to speak in stereotypes. I, uh, if I think you're, uh, did you mention you were from New Jersey when we talked before? Is yes. Right? So how does a, a a guy from Jersey with a engineer information systems background end up with this high emotional intelligence kind of framework and approach? Because if we were speaking in stereotypes, it might seem to some counterintuitive that a guy from Jersey, not the stereotype people from Jersey or guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> And we've talked to actually a few different engineers who um, who have had kind of like this similar kind of internal focus, you know, movement from this externalized, you know, hard, quote unquote, numbers, facts, whatever, or, you know, training. So I'm kind of curious what that journey was like. Uh, a hard one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I okay. won't mention any words about it, but it's a... It's a life of having a mindset of growth, um, of wanting for myself to have the the kind of life that I want for myself and doing what it takes. You know, I came out of high school and college uh, in my early 20s with really bad self-esteem. I went, I said, I don't want this for myself. Went to counseling, read a lot of books, tried different things and went on a went on a growth journey. For myself, and from that, I discovered I have great creative tools. You know, I'm a singer and a musician. I've been a photographer since teenagehood. Um, business strategy is my strength. So I have this creative side, a one side that I tapped. I, first of all, understood about myself. Second of all, tapped into it, uh, mm-hmm. as well as the left brain. You know, analytical engineering, whatever type skills, and so there's a lot I can do in life. You know, I picked up the guitar five years ago and teaching myself, you know, because I have the growth mindset. It's something I want for myself and I have the intelligence to do it. Um, but those are all things that I went on a life journey of discovering things about myself, loving myself and actually doing these things in my life, not to be afraid to do it. Um, not everybody's built like me. And that's my uniqueness. Everybody has their own uniqueness, but uh, are you willing to look inside yourself and discover what that is? That's what I help my clients do to understand their strengths. And once you understand your strengths and your weaknesses, you can go hire people that are better at your weaknesses, make them a team member with yourself and go kick butt in the marketplace. But if you're not going to look in the mirror and have open, honest conversations with others and with yourself, you're never going to discover it. You're going to sit in that F box um, mm-hmm. in your strategic positioning of your life. And you're not going to achieve what you want to achieve in your life because you're not doing the work, you're not doing the understanding, you're not doing the work. So it's in my field, it takes a lot of trust with a, with a customer to have those type of conversations one-on-one, but the person has got to be willing and, be honest with themselves to do it. That's the struggle in finding the customer is they got to get themselves there. 
If your clients are anything like me, um, you know, I tend to overestimate my faults or overemphasize my faults and underestimate my strengths. Mm-hmm. And do you find that to be a, a common trait that people have where you have to kind of you know, level set their own self-perception about what they see are their shortcomings, you know, amplifying shortcomings, minimizing successes kind of mindset. It, it, it can go figure. either way. And, okay. it, and it really depends on when you have uh, hurts inside of yourself from your, from your upbringing and you're trying to um, build your ego to sort of cover it up. Your ego can go one of two directions. It can go the, the humble, quiet, I'll sit in the corner, underestimate myself, you know, kind of standpoint, or it can go the other way in, infl- in inflation uh, to cover it up, whether it be narcissism or a bunch of boasting or wh- whatever it is to cover, cover up so that people don't see what's really going on inside. So that's part of my journey with the customers to try to decide what route they went and try and bring it back to the middle. Hmm. How how do folks, I mean, I think like building on Gary's question too, you know, if a lot of, I think, I mean, a lot of us oftentimes spend our our lives or much time in the fear box, right? We, we, Mm -hmm. and and oftentimes it's unconscious, right? We may not even recognize why we're being held back by something. So how do you know, when folks, when folks or clients come to you, you know, how, or if they don't, like, how, how do they, how do we get them to know in the first place that this is an area of inquiry for ourselves that we need to, the journey that we need to start? Well, for me, I like to start with a vision, you know, give me some words, just words. If you got sentences, that's great, but just give me some words of what a life that's full of joy and happiness and success for yourself looks like. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. So where's your destination? And then, um, all right. What, what, besides money, what, what is holding you back from having that? But where, where do you see the difficult parts being in your, Mm -hmm. if you were to build a strategy to say, okay, I want, I don't know. I want a mansion, two boats, three cars on Lake Lanier. In Northeast Georgia, I'll take that. A wife, three kids, you know, paint that picture of what all that looks like. And, you know, depending on their age and where they're at in life, well, okay, how are you going to get yourself there? Mm. And where do you think the most difficult parts would be and why? And so through that conversation and just getting them to be introspective, hopefully peeling onion back, you discover some ahas in terms of fears. Mm. Okay, yeah. If they don't already sense. know, they may already know, and they're just they're too scared, too scared of it to, to go achieve it. They already know it, and you put it on the paper, and you work on strategies to overcome that. Then there are others that just haven't been introspective at all. That you got to have that type of conversation to try and uh, call them out if you can. Hmm. And do you find do you find that you if we're I, think this, I mean this is this is uh, a really interesting approach. Because there is this challenge, right? That that oftentimes, like, we're not generally taught in the United States to be super introspective in terms of like what's what might be holding me back or like what's my framework, right? Um, and so it's 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 also, I mean, it's it's funny. It's similar to our the example of Boeing we're talking before. There's a there's a culture of of not strategizing or not introspecting, right? In terms of like where am I where am I coming from? What am I bringing to the table in the first place? And then ultimately, what how is this shaping what I'm doing today? And where I could go, you know, or not thinking about that. So, and society doesn't help us. Yeah, right. And so that that's like that's one of the interesting challenges there uh, in terms of, uh, you know, and I'm putting together like the the piece our Lego pieces of conversation so far, where it's like that recognizing this need as you've done to kind of see that we are we have this kind of gap, um, or many of us do, right? Where that that I'm, I'm focusing a little too much on. X and not Y, and not even thinking through maybe the strategy of how do I get to what I'm looking for, but not understanding necessarily why the barriers are there in the first place. You know, uh, I think is is some of like the the fundamental work that there is to do um, for being human, and then like how do we do that in in a in a society that doesn't necessarily help us think through that in the first place? You know, um, well, particularly so for I, us women. Yes, and that too, right? That we're taught to be less emotive or to 
to not show vulnerability, right? Right. Um, I, guess, I guess that's that's a curious. That's a that's a great a great point. Like, do you find that is is the work is different working with men on some level to to help? Oh yes. Get these points out. Yeah. Oh yes. And and so I mean, tell tell us a bit about it. Like, so what do we what do we see there? Is it? Um, well, it impacts all. Approach different. Yeah. Yeah, it, all, it impacts all phases of life, not just your career. It impacts the dating world. Um, there's more suicide by men. There, there's reasons behind that. Um, it, it really boils down to what your what society's definition and what's your individual definition, particularly for women, of what makes a strong man. There's vulnerability and strength and, you know, the likes of the Brene Browns of the world are starting to peel that onion back and truly understand it. And I'm, I'm hoping her work and the work of her colleagues are going to help men in this world from that perspective and what role that women can play in changing society in that. There is this, this uh, renewed focus or new focus on the toxicity of hypermasculinity as a mm-hmm. cultural concept and as a gendered kind of norm. Um, and, you know, there's, that's a whole other many episodes where we could talk about hypermasculinity where, you know, this, if you, and if you go back and look at like old Charles Bronson or Clint Eastwood movies or any of the, or, or He-Man, <laughs> right. I mean, the notion <laughs> of like the cartoon He-Man, right. Like what does it mean to be masculine, you know, hyper individualism, hyper masculinity, um, you know, the the myth of uh you know going it alone right and how that then enters into from like the zeitgeist of culture into our daily lives and affects how we conduct ourselves especially yeah, so around uh, men you know like i said I, male yeah. loneliness is huge men don't talk yeah. about their health problems men commit suicide more you know men men don't uh, go to the doctor men don't go to the doctor mm. right yeah I'm a big uh, love versus fear, and you know, as you could tell from the SWOT analysis discussion and so forth. And I did a podcast episode uh, titled "Warrior versus a Fighter." Uh, and for men, uh, the analogy that's used is sort of a benevolent king versus um, an aggressive king, and and the behavioral attributes of both sides. And it's really, to me, really boils down to what's the main subconscious driver in your life is it love or fear uh, to be loved doesn't mean you you don't go out there and work on your fighting skills and know how to defend yourself and create proper boundaries and so forth and so on uh, you still do that uh, but your basis is benevolence and love and finding the win-win with your neighboring kings and uh, service to the people that live in your kingdom and so forth Versus somebody that's a king that's living out of fear and goes and conquers other nations, um, doesn't care about his people. It's all about his power and control and those type things. So they're they're both strong, but what are what what are the values or the definitions that are behind that strength? And I think that's where the struggle is for the world mm. today, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the value question is interesting because we are seeing, you know, like in in workplace organizations, there's there's been more shifts towards this the bringing your whole self to work, right, in, into the workplace. And um, I think like this this echoes this idea that we're we are beginning to more question what values are driving the way that we live and and also like that we do we do business with. And you know, and so also, I mean, I'm thinking of echoes of the rise of B Corps or benefit corporations, right? And, and like what's the purpose of a business? Mm. Um, what are the values that drive our our you know needs and and even like other kind of broader pushes between you know the the unending emphasis on shareholder capitalism versus rethinking about stakeholder capitalism in terms of like who has access to to, to resources and what is what is the the resources for so it's interesting that like we're we're interesting entering this this kind of inflection point you know that uh is is great to see you know but it's definitely like it's interesting because it also means we're unearthing a lot of um 
you know, skeletons in closets and, and a lot of pain, right? We are, we are now being more explicit about examining our fears um, and, and asking what are the values that drive both my life and then also how I approach business um, and, and asking that to change, you know? So it is interesting because it is, a, you know, to, to add on to our biblical metaphor, a bit, a bit of a David and Goliath kind of feel story oh. sometimes, right? That it is right. this, uh, you know, how do we, how do we uh, move up against the giant as it were in, in order to change these values and to, and to talk about, to even to talk about them actually is, is one of the biggest challenges. So I think that that's a really. Well, well, to be comfortable in talking about it. Mm. To embrace yeah. the fear, to to recognize it, you know. The I hate to say this, but the analogy that comes in my head is is the journey of an alcoholic, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Sometimes we have to have an yeah. intervention to get the person to recognize, truly recognize, and embrace in their heart that they have an issue. The same thing on the fear side. Mm. You even recognize. Did he, did, oh, I think he froze. Did you freeze, Andy? He froze. Oh, I think you're back. Okay. We got your back. Can you hear us? Yep. Yep. So we, we were just saying, a blip. Do you even recognize what was where, was the do you, do you, Yeah. Do you, do you even recognize that you have a fear or fears or hurts inside of you that the fear is causing this blockage, if you will? in in your life that's driving these behaviors you're not mm-hmm. being introspective and willing to embrace it to sit to sit with it and that, you know, that's part of Brene Brown's work too is recognize the fear be able to sit with it acknowledge it be a little comfortable being around it so that you can then start working with it right. as opposed to just building a huge ego and putting up a wall and not even addressing it and just allowing your behaviors to keep doing what you're doing and to, to extend the uh, you know the the alcoholism metaphor the person has to want to change the person has to yes. want to make that shift and it's also a program right i mean and i know i say this because you have a program it's not just you know you work with people one time and looking at your website you have a number of uh sessions coming forward with your four pillar program mm-hmm. so it's both you have to want to change you have to seek help you have to admit you have a problem or a need and you have to go through the steps of the program in order to make that, that transformation possible. And you have to seek the help of others to support you in that mm-hmm. journey. So if I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about you know, your program and what it is that, that you do beyond just these you know, singular touch point encounters with clients to help them have these conversations, but to make this longer journey of transfer, internal transformation possible. So I have a combination of uh, one-on-one coaching workshops and um, a mastermind-like service. And, and the workshops and the mastermind is, is the business side of it. Let's work on what's outside of you. You know, so the workshops are all about uh, your own productivity, uh, your ideal customer set, uh, your purpose in life and in your business and those type things. It's the one-on-one coaching that I, get behind closed doors with somebody and have the conversations like we, we talked originally about of, uh, okay, first of all, I have to know that you want something different for yourself and that you're willing to put in the work. If you're not willing to have those things, then this is a waste of time and a waste of your money. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have that instilled and you're ready to get to work, then let's have the conversation about, what you want your life to look like and let's build a life strategy for yourself and look at different aspects for your life and so forth. I start bringing those business tools into the conversation to get them to a point where they're confident as a leader, a leader of themselves, and then flip it 180 and a leader of others in, in your business. And then we can get you into the, the workshops and the mastermind right. uh, group. So I, I typically get together over a, cup of coffee or water or whatever with a client and have a conversation and try and figure out where their headspace is and develop a strategy out of my services to help them get to where they want to go for themselves and for their business. Do you often, do you often do the, the coursework kind of in parallel in terms of like self and business, or do you find that some folks just go for self, some folks just go for, for business or, or are they like intertwined in them? They must be in terms of how we. Yeah. I, I, I limit my clientele to business owners. 
Gotcha. Or somebody has what I call a PL. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who knows? Maybe my business will take off and I'll be able to do just one on one for people for <laughs> you know their own life strategies. I, sure. I don't know. Maybe maybe my business might go that route and stay out of the business side. You know, you, you never know since I'm just starting on my journey. But mm-hmm. um, uh, well, those I have conversations with, I'm seeking at the moment is is business owners and trying to do an assessment of how they feel like they are from a leadership skills standpoint and an ability to lead themselves if they're a solopreneur like myself mm-hmm. or have a team of folks in their business and how can you lead others and try to be introspective of that and decide what's the proper path. Okay, cool. And that, I mean, it's interesting too, because it's, you know, you're, we're talking about Brene Brown and so it's, it's you know, very much, uh, you know, I think her works like over the years has also pointed also more towards business, but it's interesting in this regard too, where it's like, we can, we can draw when we need to draw from, um, the, the, you know, the, the work, the psychology and vulnerability, you know, that like they, they overlap personal perspective, they overlap though. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's very a, cool. A lot, that, like, not just yeah. a little, a lot because business has human beings involved. So the human mm-hmm. being dynamic comes into it. So till we have a day where business is all robots, <laughs> it, it will always be an issue. That is true. Uh, I, I, maybe one day we're going to have some robot therapists, but we'll look, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with the humans for now. You know, <laughs> I'm just working a thousand hours a week, you know, and like my RPMs are just too high. You know, it's just yeah. <laughs> hard to say. Uh, yeah. But I think, but that's important too. I mean, like, uh, you know, I think too, just to kind of the, the echo the, the idea that, you know, obviously humans are part of the business process. Like, I mean, we're the ones that make it, you know, um, and, and yet, you know, oftentimes we, we, we all have heard the phrase, it's just business. And it's like, it's never just business, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> never has been. Never no, we, well, we've, we got a trail of failings with that thought. Yeah. A trail. Of, that's a, that's a good way. Yes, we have a trail of failings from that thought. Totally. Um, yeah. You know, so, I mean, this has been, I mean, think of the, think of the yeah. guy that recently got on a zoom call, laid off 900 employees. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not great. Not great. That's how I give out grades. I'm like, you know, all right, I got yeah. some bad news. You know, I got some good news for me. It's just business. Thing. Just business. Nothing personal. Just business. Just business. I was being very efficient at being, you know, doing business. Get on yeah. a Zoom call and lay off 900 folks all at the same time. Uh, check. Okay. That was my ha- ha- half an hour on my schedule. Moving on to the next thing. Cause it's okay. just business. Reminds me of a quote from a movie, uh, for, uh, new Jack city. Great movie from, mm-hmm. uh, Adam's probably too young for the rumor of this movie, but, uh, Wesley Snipes said never personal, always business, always business, mm-hmm. always just, just business, man. Got to shoot. you. Don't take it personally. No. Well, how else am I supposed to take it? You're shooting me. Right. <laughs> You're laying. And, and the funny thing is about that CEO, he was uh, put on leave and now he was just brought back. He's just brought back. Yeah. Mm. So like what, like mm. what mess, you know, like, are, you know, are we going back to the, the slash and burn eighties, you know, or, you know, are we going to, this goes back to Adam's inflection point, or are we moving into a different generation, a different era of business leadership? And uh, it's a, growth? it's a media moment, right? You, you hear all mm. the time where somebody's in the fire pan and they're like, Oh, please let something else be in the fire pan next in two or three days and get the focus off of me. Mm. And I can go back to what I was doing. In the meanwhile, the impact of your decisions is still there. Right. It's not in the media for, for light because something political or something, whatever else, some catastrophe accident or whatever happened and all the media focuses over there and they forgot about me. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why that's, that's, you know, tell that's that, tell that to all the people that were affected by your decisions. Right. It hasn't left it's them. Just the business. business. <laughs> yep. That's the thing. That's the thing. You know, it's like, we, we don't, how do we, how do we get businesses to, to then like begin to make that transformation is, is the key. And that's where it's where we need to be, you know, because it is like, uh, it's this, right. It's like one person's half an hour onto lunch. 900 people's lives were changed forever. You know, well, so I mean, what is, what is the, what is the cost there? There's a silver lining to everything. And that's part of the silver lining to this whole pandemic is, um, 
everybody's affected by it either directly in themselves or they know somebody else in their life that's important to them has been affected. And so just like a midlife crisis or having a heart attack at the age of 42, that's like right, right now in your face. Mm. And why we've seen, you know, the great resignation show up because people are having those internal thoughts finally. Yeah. But what's important to them in their life and, um, you know, number one reason why people leave their job is because of their relationship with their direct, direct leader. Mm. And maybe they were just putting up with their direct leader and so forth. And now they're saying, no, life's too short. I don't want to work for him or her. And out the door they go and they're looking for something better in droves. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's important, right? Cause it's, yeah, it's like when you realize that life is, life is only so long and, uh, you know, to your point before, in terms when when folks say like you know why are you not making a change like it's the the first part if it might be money is where most of us may start because it's like I don't I don't want to lose but uh you know when we actually take the time to think about it it's like but the interpersonal relationship is why I don't want this work you know I want to leave this company for this reason so it's like money stops being enough as as a barrier um, at some point so it's like helping people get to that sooner makes the world. So I did difference, a- right? Uh, I recently did a podcast uh, talking about a study that MIT Sloan Business School did looking at what's important to an employee, sort of looking from the bottom up, so to speak, in terms of culture, uh, the top 10 things. And pay and benefits showed up, I think, at number six. Mm, Makes sense. Number one was respect. That makes good sense. Um, Yes. I mean, yeah, right. Because that's like ultimately when it comes out, that's what people want. And I mean, so do, so do like egotistical leaders, right? They also want that. They just, you know, they have a the crown jewels behind them, so they they keep making decisions that are not good for, for other humans. Yeah, the top the top five are what I call emotional items or emotional values. It doesn't cost the company a nickel other than their supervisor's time. Yeah. No, and that that's that's the point. I think you know, like it doesn't cost more to do that. It actually is better for productivity and well you can put some dollars to the time but you know what, what's your return on your investment of that time you're going to pay that you're going to pay that supervisor money for t- his his or her time anyway mm-hmm. doing something but what's the return on the investment of his or her time is uh, the real question yeah well, hopefully, you know, as we have more conversations like this and people listen to your podcast and hopefully listen to our podcast as well, <laughs> that, uh, you know, th- these conversations can be part of the mainstream and not just these, uh, these moments here. So really appreciate you taking that time, Andy, to talk about your own personal transformation journey and the opportunities for others to take that journey along with you through the, uh, the services and the programs and the and the successes and changes that you found. So really appreciate it. Yeah, I greatly appreciate you guys uh, inviting me to come on and this an important conversation that needs, needs to happen more than just us three bearded guys sitting around having this conversation, right? Right. More bearded be guys. More mainstream. More bearded guys. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. More bearded guys should have this conversation. So that right. right. More guys from Jersey <laughs> should have this conversation. All right. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. We want to thank Andy McDowell of Generate Your Value for talking with us about his own journeys of transformation. And you can learn more about his work along with what Andy's been up to today in our show notes. And as always, we'd love to hear from you, the EXD community. And this week, we're thinking about what have been some of the biggest challenges to your personal or organizational transformation and what have maybe been some frustrating times where you have felt unheard? And coming out of these kinds of situations and scenarios, you know, what recommendations do you have to achieve transformational change and what might you share with others? Head on over to our LinkedIn page to continue the conversation, or of course, you can shoot us a message at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And as always, we always want to thank you for your continued support of the podcast, your ideas, your contributions, your encouragement all make the podcast possible and make us excited about coming back to it every time we do. 
You can always make a contribution to supporting the cost of the podcast through our website, where you will find a link to buy us a coffee. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode of EXD, feel free to send us a message to chat about how to make that possible. And you can always use our email feedback at experiencexdesign.com to share your feedback with us. And last but not least, if you want to subscribe to stay up to date on all the most recent EXD news, head over to our website, put in your email, and we'll make sure to include you on the list. And with that, be healthy, be safe, be happy, be kind, and hope you will be here for the next Experience by Design podcast.